And turn please to Philippians in chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 1. Someone told me I should announce that I know what time tip-off is today, and I don't care. <laughs> Just to see if you'd be nervous, since it's at 3 o'clock. <clears throat> As opposed to last week's noon tip-off. So, Once you've found that, let's pray. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and trust that you will work this word in us. God, I pray if there are those here in whom you have yet to begin a work, it would be our heart's desire that you would begin it. For those in whom you've begun a work, we pray that along with others that this word would work, be brought to completion in us so that we would understand it and live in such a way as to live consistent with it. The great joy would be ours in this great enterprise of the gospel. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be reading this morning out of the English Standard Version, which is just one of the newer versions I read last year in my quiet time. And it's a very literal translation, so I'm going to try it out in Philippians. So Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Last Sunday we finished... Uh, the Gospel of Mark, we've been there for some time, and so now it comes to take up another section of Scripture, and I've chosen um, the book of Philippians, this letter to the church. Uh, in Philippi, I have no particular agenda here. I've been thinking about this for a couple of years, actually, to preach from Philippians. Didn't take it up when Mark started. Didn't think I'd be there for as long as I was, but now it seems a good opportunity uh, to take up Philippians for whatever reason. It is the word of God, it is God breathed, therefore it's profitable for us to equip us and to train us for everything that God has for us, so we trust it's good. I trust that those of you who pray for me, that I know what to preach next, uh, that your prayers have been answered and that we're in the right place. Thus, uh, with that in mind and no other agenda really, let's take this up. I want to make a couple of observations from the first two verses, but my, my plan today then is to move on into verses, especially five and six and lay out what I think we can expect over the next number of however long we're in uh, this particular letter. So I want us to set some expectations uh, about what uh, I believe will happen to us uh, in the course of our consideration of Philippians. You'll notice just in the first couple of verses that this is a letter to, the, to a church that's in Philippi, a particular city, a particular occasion um, that brings Paul to write this. Uh, he's with his uh, uh, friend Timothy, his son in the faith as he refers to him on various occasions. Uh, Paul is really the author here by the Holy Spirit of this letter, Timothy with him. 
They refer to themselves, Paul refers to he and Timothy, as servants of Christ. That's important, just so that we know that what Paul is writing here is coming from not his initiation, but from the initiation of Christ. He understands himself to be, that is, his self-identity is that he's a slave of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has bought him with his blood, and therefore Paul belongs to Jesus as his servant, and therefore he's explaining to us that he's coming to us not on his own initiative, not in his own wisdom, but because he belongs to Christ. And so as we read this letter, there's a sense in which we need to read it as if it were from Christ himself through Paul. People who like red-letter editions to the Bible need to understand that all the letters are in red. Uh, It's all from Christ, uh, though it's helpful sometimes to distinguish that in the Gospel, though it drives me crazy. Uh, to read red letters, but anyway, it's all red, it's all from Christ, and that's what Paul's telling us here. Then he writes, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, when he writes to all the saints, he doesn't have in mind a particular category of Christian or a particular class of Christian called a saint. Uh, Saints to Paul were all believers, because the word saints from Greek, where the Greek is hagios, and we know that my mother taught me that because she loved to refer to herself as an old hag. From the, as a holy one. Uh, and so hagios is the Greek for, for holy one and holy ones. And so Paul's writing to all the holy ones in Philippi, meaning all the Christians, because in Christ Jesus, we're all holy. That's the good news of the gospel. Apart from Christ, we aren't holy. But to see God and to enter his presence, we must be holy, we must be righteous. And therefore... To be a Christian, to be in the presence of God, we must be among the holy ones. Well, how does one get to be a holy one? Not by trying harder, but by receiving the holiness, receiving the righteousness of Christ. And that's the good news of the gospel. His righteousness is imputed to us or counted to us or credited to us or given to us or covered over us, however you want to say that. So we come on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. No special category of saints in the context of Christians. We all are such. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with overseers and deacons. So he says that there are overseers, that is elders or literally bishops, but elders among you and deacons, meaning that this church is fully organized according to Paul's standards of organization. When he would plant a church... He would appoint elders, and deacons would follow, elders to oversee the life and ministry of the church, as our elders do, and deacons as to be servants in the context of the church. And so he said, there's this church in Philippi, and I'm writing to them. Because, you see, in Paul's difficulties, this church, as I mentioned a little while ago during the offering time, this church helped him greatly by sending him this gift. And this uh, uh, man, Epaphroditus, came to him with this gift, and then Epaphroditus got sick. So sick that Paul was afraid he was going to die. They prayed for him, eventually got better. And now Paul is sending him back with this letter. And Epaphroditus brought to Paul this money, this gift, various gifts, and encouragement from the people in Philippi. And now Paul is sending him back uh, with this letter. And that's what we have here. Now notice, as Paul begins this letter, he, he talks about his praying for them. In verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. So Paul's saying, every time I go to pray, I think about you. 
That's a pretty special group of people. I don't know about you, but there aren't that many people that come to my mind, sad to say other than me, on a regular basis, when I begin to pray. I'm always in there, because I'm always really in need. But they're only, I think, of my wife, my children, they're always there, you often. So this must be a very special group of people to Paul, so that every single time, when he begins to pray, he thinks of them. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, plus he's thanking God for them, so it's in a good light. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And so when they come to mind and he begins to pray and to thank God for them, a smile comes on him. I mean, he's filled with joy as he does that. So the affection for this church must really be great. But I must confess to you, I wonder about this joy of which Paul professes. I wonder about it for two reasons. One, because of his circumstances, and secondly, because of theirs. Because when Paul writes this letter, he's in prison. Notice in verse 7, uh, he says, in my imprisonment, as I have it here, or in verse 14 of chapter 1, that my imprisonment is for Christ. Some versions have, while I'm in chains. And so you get the impression that his imprisonment is in a, is in a situation where he's, he's chained literally to his guard. And then in verse 14, he speaks of his imprisonment again. In verse 17, he speaks of his imprisonment. So Paul's in prison when he writes this. Most likely, he's in prison in Rome. Um, he says, for instance, in, in verse uh, 13, that uh, uh, the gospel is becoming known throughout the whole praetorian guard or imperial guard that is Caesar's own uh, special guards. And then at the end, he, he signs off by saying, all the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. And so you get this sense that he's in Rome. That makes sense because Paul was imprisoned in Rome. You read in the book of Acts. And so he's probably there, and it's probably in the early 60s, not 1960s, but so he's not on anything, but it's this, it's uh, early 60, 61, 62 uh, A.D., and, and he's writing this letter from prison. But I wonder, how is it that he can be filled with joy in the midst of that kind of a situation? He thinks, when I think of you, meaning this church in Philippi, I'm filled with joy. There's a sense of lightness. It's not a, it's not a duty to pray for you, but it's a delight to pray for you. In fact, in praying for you, joy seems to burst forth. And not only that, but while Paul is in prison, he's also suffering in a different way, and, and perhaps even a more difficult way. Because we read, beginning in verse 12, that as Paul is in prison, there are preachers of the gospel who are preaching and declaring the true gospel. That is to say, it's legitimate gospel preaching. They're getting it right. But they're preaching in such a way as to make Paul look bad. So here he is suffering in prison with this unjust punishment, simply for declaring the gospel he's in prison. And there are those who are preaching on the outside in such a way that's making life even worse for Paul and giving him a bad reputation. And so he's living in the midst of that. But he says, I still have joy when I think of you. In fact, in verse 18, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in, pre in, in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So he's still rejoicing in the context of being in prison. And I wonder... How can that be? What's the source of that? What's the ground of that? What's the foundation of that? What's the basis of that joy in Paul as he prays while he's in prison, while he's chained to another guard, while he can't get out, while he can't do what he wants to do, and while even his reputation is being stained? 
But not only that, he has joy when he thinks of them, even though he knows they too are suffering. Notice in chapter 1 and verse 27, he writes this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And so there are some identifiable opponents in Philippi who are against the Christians there, the saints in Philippi. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that, I, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so they're suffering for the sake of the gospel. I mean, Philippi wasn't an easy place for the gospel to first enter. Paul himself, when he was with his friend Silas and first coming to Philippi, was arrested for sharing the gospel. He put into the inner prison, it said. The only way he got out was through an earthquake. So it was a difficult place in Philippi. No doubt that difficulty still continued. Not only that, but they were in a place, a Roman colony, they were in a place where Caesar would be pronounced as Lord and Savior. And of course, that could never be a profession from the lips of a Christian. And thus, not to make it would, recall, would, would cause persecution and perhaps even death. And so there they found themselves in that kind of an environment. And yet Paul says, when I think of you suffering, I have joy. And I wonder, shouldn't he have sympathy? Shouldn't he have sorrow? Shouldn't he be grieving the fact that they're suffering? Why is it that when Paul thinks of them, even in the context of their suffering, that he's filled in some sense with joy, that a smile comes to his face? Why is that? Well, two reasons, I think. We find them here. For instance, in verse 5, he goes on to say, because, that's helpful, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That is to say, Paul, Paul looks at them, thinks of his own life suffering, thinks of their life suffering, filled with joy, because there's a partnership here. And it's a partnership in the gospel that began in the first day when he first got to Philippi, and it's continuing even until now. So there's a partnership in the gospel. Now that little word partnership, many of you are familiar with the Greek of that, for it's simply the word koinonia. Now, when we think of that word koinonia, if you've been around the church long enough, you've been in a koinonia group, um, we think of fellowship, sharing some time together that's fun, that's nice, that's, that's edifying, that's helpful for us. We like koinonia things. And so, no doubt, Paul has a certain sense of sharing with them in the gospel. They're all believers. He shared the gospel with them when he went. They believed. They believe he believes they're all part of the family of God, and that's good. That's a certain fellowship there. But I think Paul has something a little bit more um, objective and significant in mind when he says Quinine at this point, and the, my, this Bible I've read translates it as a partnership. It is a partnership that Paul has with these people in Philippi, and it's a partnership for the advancement of the gospel. Notice in chapter 4 and verse 14. I read this at the offering time. Paul writes, It was kind of you to share my trouble 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel when it first came, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more and well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable, acceptable and pleasing to God. And so he says, evidence of this partnership that we're together in this is that you've helped me. You've joined with me. And what you've joined with me in is in this gospel. And when he speaks of gospel in this letter, he speaks of the gospel going forth. For instance, in chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul writes this. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So in Paul's mind, what's happening here is he's in partnership with the church in Philippi for the purpose of advancing the gospel. And thus you see, wherever Paul is, whatever Paul's doing, as long as the gospel's advancing, Paul's a happy guy. And so Paul says, I think of my own life in prison. But you know what? Even while I'm in prison, the gospel is advancing. And that brings joy to me. And I think of you suffering. But even in the midst of your suffering, and maybe even because of it, as you oppose those who oppose you, the gospel is advancing, and that brings me joy. If you have children, I don't know when you're most joyful about them. When they were little, it was when they were sleeping. When they're older, I must confess, it's something like this. When I think of them standing in the face of opposition for the cause of Christ, even if it should bring difficulty in their life, it brings joy to me. Much more joy than when they're sitting in front of the television, fat and happy. Because you see, when they're striving for the cause of Christ, then I know they're doing that for which they were made. And if they're doing that for which they were made, and God is being glorified therefore, then that is what brings joy to a father's heart. And so you see, as Paul's thinking about this partnership with him in the gospel, and the gospel advancing, he doesn't need to feel sorry for them. Oh, sympathy, no doubt. And, 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 and if you ask him, Paul, would you rather they be suffering or not? He'd say, no, I'd rather they be free. Would you rather you be in prison or free? He'd say, no, I'd rather be free. But the point of the matter is, his joy isn't dependent upon those kinds of circumstances. It's only dependent on what's happening in the context of the gospel. Are we standing firm? Are we striving for the gospel? Are we moving to advance the gospel? If we are, then I don't care where we are. Are, and I don't care what's happening to us, I will have joy. Ah, that's where he is. He sees them striving for the gospel and thus he will rejoice. And so then he goes on. Well, before I get to that, let me say this. J.I. Packer wrote a book called um, Hot Tub Religion. It's an interesting title for a J.I. Packer book. If you've ever seen J.I. Packer and picture him in a hot tub, uh, you don't want to go there. But... Um, <laughs> Well, it's a great book, Hot Tub Religion, and I won't explain the title. But in one of the chapters on joy, he lists a number of sources that, that, that provide joy in the life of a person. One of them, he says, is possessing something worth possessing. Joy comes, at least in part, one source of joy, is having or possessing something that is worth it, 
Something that's significant. I don't know if you have significant things in your possession. But if you do, my suspicion is they bring joy to you when you think about them, when you view them. And so Paul knows he has Christ. And so there's nothing more important than having Christ. And he knows he has Christ, and what Christ brings in the context of his life is forgiveness of sins, relationship with God, acceptance by God, fellowship with other believers. So he has Christ. In fact, he speaks of it. I don't want to steal my thunder from chapter 3, but it might be months till we get to chapter 3. In verse 7, he writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is Paul saying, listen, regardless of what I've suffered, regardless of what I've sacrificed, all of that is, is, is like rubbish to me, because what I have is Christ. And if I have Christ, then I have something worth possessing. I have something worth having. I have something that's worth everything else and more. It brings him joy. But there's another point that Packer makes that's quite interesting. He says, joy not only comes from having something worth having, possessing something worth possessing, but he says it also comes from having something worth sharing. Possessing something of such great value that it's worth giving. And that to be a great source of joy. Do you know why? Because that's what we were made for. Being created in the image of God, we were created to give. Being created in the image of God, we're created to share. Being created in the image of God, we're created to love. God is a sharer. God is a lover. That's who he is. He's, he created us, not because he needed us, but he created us because that's who he is. He's one who shares. He's a community guy because he's God. We're created in his image. And thus you see, when we have something worth possessing. That's great. And that's a certain point of joy. But that joy comes to completion when we share it. Having something of great value to share is what we were made for, what we were saved for, what we were born for, what we were born again for, in order to have it so that we can share it. And as we share it, then the joy is brought to completion great joy. And so you see Paul is saying he's, they're contending for the gospel with him. They're partners. They have something worth possessing, something worth sharing. And so it brings him great joy. But then he goes on in verse 6 and he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. See, Paul's not only filled with joy because of the fact that they have this Christ they have this gospel and they're partners together. And even if it's advancing, but he's filled with joy because he knows this gospel will be triumphant. There's absolutely positively nothing that can stop it. Because you see, Paul comes to them and he, and he says, you know, when I came to Philippi, I began a good work there and I'll be faithful to bring it to completion. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, when I came to Philippi, you began a good work by entering into the gospel. And I trust that over the course of time, you'll be faithful and you'll bring it to completion. He doesn't say that. 
He says, God began a good work in you, and he will bring it to completion. His confidence isn't in himself, and it isn't in them, but rather it's in God. As well, one would suspect. Because, you see, Paul didn't want to go to Philippi in the first place. You might remember the story as the missionary journeys in the book of Acts unfold. By the time you get to Acts chapter 16, Paul is now with a guy named Silas, and they're going around. And Paul had thought it was most wise to go and visit all the churches that they had already established. A, a nice thing to do, a wise thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that. He's going to go and encourage them, perhaps help build them up. However, one night he receives this vision. This man from Macedonia shows up and says, come to Macedonia. Paul, being the spiritual man that he is, said, I think we should go to Macedonia. And so they do. They go to Macedonia, they come to Philippi, a key city, and there he comes upon a group of women, small group of women, who are praying together. One of them's name is Lydia. She becomes a Christian as Paul preaches. But Paul describes it like this, Luke describes it like this in the book of Acts, that God opened her heart to believe. So who started this good work in Philippi? God. Who started this good work in Lydia? God. And then, because of their work in the gospel, this young girl who was demon-possessed uh, started following Paul and Silas around and making various comments. Now, she was a demon-possessed girl who was a slave girl who was owned by some men who were using her to predict the future, and then they would sell um, her predictions. Paul got annoyed, literally, with this girl and cast the demon out of her, so then she was not profitable anymore for her slave owners. They got all upset, had Paul and Silas beaten and arrested and put into the inner prison. Now, is the gospel stuck at that point? Well, it would be if it were left to Paul and Silas, but it wasn't because God intervened in a God kind of way with an earthquake and freed Paul and Silas. And in their being freed, the jailer who was there was pretty impressed and said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your household will be saved. He believed. Now, who started that good work? In that Philippian jailer. It wasn't Paul. Paul was just escaping from prison that he was escaping from because God let him out because of the earthquake. Paul would know. I didn't start this good work. You didn't start this good work. God started this good work. See, now Paul's joy comes as he thinks of them because he knows that God has started a good work first in them individually. God, Paul knows that it was God who opened the hearts of the people in Philippi, just like he opened our hearts if we believe, to believe our salvation is a work started by, initiated by God, not us. If you're a person who believes in Jesus, you didn't start that good work. He did. That's why you can have confidence that you're going to be able to persevere to the end. Because if you started it, you might bail. But he started it, and he won't. He started it, and he'll persevere with you to preserve you in him. Paul knew that. For instance, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul writes, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says it's God who's at work in you. Therefore, if you go to the preceding part of that sentence, in verse 12, 
he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is, keep, keep working this out. Why? On what basis does he have any confidence to tell them to work out their salvation? Only because, he says, God is at work in you. If God wasn't working in you, Paul would have no confidence to say, work it out. And then in chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, But our, citizens, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, but a power that enables him to subject all things to himself. He says, listen, God has begun that good work. We're already citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But he's going to bring it to completion because the guarantee is that our citizenship is in heaven, but from it we await the Savior who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body on the day that he comes. So he will bring it to completion. He started it. He'll bring it to completion. But not only that. That's not the only work he started in Philippi. Because in Philippi, he also started the work of advancing the gospel. Not just in the hearts of an individual person, but throughout the community. And even from there, as they're partners together throughout the world. Have you ever wondered, will the gospel prevail? Have you ever looked around and wondered that? Turned on the television set? You don't see much gospel prevailing. When you look around and you see the ills of society, and even sometimes you look in the context of the church and you see the difficulties there. I mean, even here in Philippi, there are all kinds of difficulties. Paul had to tell them to, to not be selfish, and not to be in rivalry with each other, but, but rather be humble, because there was some selfish ambition going on in the context of the church in Philippi. There was a problem. He told them also not to grumble and question. So there was grumbling and complaining going on in the church of Philippi. But still, Paul said, the gospel will advance from here. Well, why did he know that? Because Jesus had said, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. This gospel will be victorious. So not to fret, continue to strive after the gospel. So here's Paul in prison, thinking of a group of people themselves suffering because of opposition against the gospel. And he's saying, when I think about you... I'm filled with joy. Because when I think about you, I think of the gospel at work in your heart. And when I think about you, I think about the gospel advancing from you. And when I think about the gospel at work in your heart, and I think about the gospel advancing from you, I think about God. And when I think about God, then I realize it'll keep working in you, and it'll keep advancing from you. And that brings me joy. So I think this as we come to consider this particular letter. I think that when we're done, what will have happened if God is kind to us and God helps us is that our faith will increase. And that our faith will increase together as a community of believers in such a way that we really will believe that that work he started in us will be brought to completion when Christ returns. And that our assurance individually will grow. But not only that, but our faith in God will increase to the point that we will believe that the gospel will advance. That the gospel will triumph through us and this community and throughout the whole world. When we first came, 
we believed that God could change the world through Lawrence, Kansas. And we still believe that. Not because we're trusting that we started a good work here and we will change the world through Lawrence, Kansas, but we believe that God has started a work here and that he is faithful and we trust that the gospel will advance in here and from here. And we trust, I trust, I pray that when we're finished with Philippians, our faith in God will be so strong that nothing will deter us and nothing will defeat us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray with as much of my heart as a sinner like me can pray that you would work by your word through your spirit to change us by increasing our faith in you to believe that the work that you started in each of us individually to save us you will complete and that we can bank on the fact that our citizenship is now in heaven and you will transform our lowly bodies on the day of Christ Jesus into our heavenly bodies but Father I pray too that you would grant to us increased faith to believe that our labor is not in vain but this work of the gospel to which you've called us will be triumphant will be victorious will make a significant difference here and throughout the course of the world that we'll believe that no matter what we see no matter what circumstances we're in and that Father knowing that you're at work in us and knowing that you're at work through us will bring to us great joy, such great joy that nothing else will satisfy. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there are elders available to pray, so please take advantage of that. Don't forget of all the various activities happening in the life of our church this week. So please take note. The response to the benediction is this one. Praise be to God. Amen. Say praise be to God. It's that your joy comes from knowing He is at work in you and through you. And when you say amen, you're saying yes, so be it. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now to Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before His glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory dominion, majesty, and power both now and